Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. In the House and in the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Hannah Smith is the National Campaigns Coordinator at the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, also known as the AMWU. The AMWU represents tens of thousands of workers across Australia in all areas of manufacturing, from food and confectionery, metal manufacturing and engineering, printing, design, packaging and more. Hannah has worked in various capacities at the AMWU for the past six years, starting as an organiser with print workers. Hannah has worked on a variety of election campaigns over the years and in the electorate office of the Deputy Opposition Leader, Tanya Plibersek. Some of you might even remember her from her role in Season 2 of Bachelor in Paradise, where she featured as my best friend. She really is my best friend. I'm very grateful that she can share her insights as a staunch unionist and feminist with us today. Hannah, welcome to In the House and In the Senate. I'll start off with our first question we always start off with. What is a day in the life of the National Campaigns Coordinator at the AMWU like? Um, Thanks, Leishie. I First of all, I mean, it's... It's a bit of a weird one at the moment, I think, for so many people. I'm uh, real deep into this um, second lockdown here in Sydney. So um, where I usually would be out and about, I'm sort of relegated to my tiny dining room. Um, but some things remain the same. So I wake up every morning, um, check in with our media monitoring and check if there's any issues that our members will need us to speak on or act on during the day. 
have a quick team check-in um, to make sure we're all pulling in the same direction. And then I've had a bunch of meetings today. So everything from job security across the across all of all of the Australian workforce, um, plus um, safety, um, particularly around welding. Um, and then <laughs> <That's> niche. <laughs> very niche, very niche. I've learned a lot about bromide and other things. Um, meeting with a, a colleague about our campaign to support Australian manufacturing and then catching up with some workplace representatives from uh, food manufacturing, which is always fun because um, they have the best traits. And then just in between, just doing general bits and pieces for our national secretary, which is kind of like the leader of, of the union. Han, it's, you know, you mentioned welding. <laughs> what is that <laughs> like? Like, you know, and I know you personally, you're not a welder. <laughs> what What is, tell me about this. I, I feel like it's not attention, but it's like you have a role in the union movement. You're not, I know there's a term for it. You're not a... Rank and Fala. Rank and Fala. What's yeah. that like when you sort of have this maybe knowledge gap between some of the stuff that your workers are doing on the ground and you're having to advocate on their behalf? Well, I actually think so. So, you know, there is a principle in the union movement that the people that you're representing, you should look like, right? And so I agree with that. I don't look like a lot of the members that um, uh, I work with. Um, but I think um, what I try and do is take that knowledge and understand um, whatever process it is, whether it's welding, whether it's making lollies at a confectionery factory, et cetera, and find a way for people who we are trying to change their minds, for example, politicians, find a way for them to understand it. So I try and be sort of the conduit between workers on the grounds experience and, um, the, you know, the very short attention span of lots of our politicians. So that in that way, sort of like a translator. Um, but after doing this for, you know, six years or so, I, I, I am starting to learn some of the, um, the, the, the sort of practices and the, the trades, et cetera. I don't think a lot of like, you know, women, young women, sort of, I'm coming at it from my perspective, women in their late 20s, a lot of people who are not sort of in the Labor Party would really know somebody who works in the union movement. What is it, like, what drew you to working in the union movement? I guess, um, I think, I think you know some of this story. Obviously, you and I met at university, um, uh, through student activism, which is a really, really cool way to spend your early 20s. Um, uh, but there's always, I guess, so So that was the path in, right? So um, activism um, at a student level, um, you know, it feeds pretty, pretty neatly into activism in the workplace, right? Um, but, of course, there's always more that calls out um, for us to take that initial step. Um, so for me, feminism was where my commitment to sort of change and um, sort of organising started. So through high school, I guess I knew um, that I thought the world could be much better for women, um, but I sort of didn't know how to articulate it or where to direct my anger and frustration. And then I guess at university, meeting and talking with other young women, we could sort of name what it was that we experienced and then go deeper into why we had all had this same experience and what structures underpinned it and how do we change it. And I guess from there it was an informed decision that I sort of have learned how power works and how power can be shifted and I made a decision that I really wanted to affect as much change as I possibly could in my short um, working life and the Unimovement movement was the most effective place for me to do that. Can I take you back to high school and, you know, 
just this feeling that the world is unfair for women and sort of like maybe, you know, your early feminism, but not being able to necessarily label some things like the patriarchy. What do you think you were noticing in the world that was sort of galvanizing you and making you, to, for lack of a better word, like feel emotions and want to change things? I guess, you know, babe, like there's every single um, interaction that we have builds the person that we want to become, of course, but there are some that stand out. And so I think for me, um, and I'm still not very good at telling this story, um, but for me, um, there was a woman who looked after me in my last year in high school. I didn't live at home. Um, And she was a survivor of domestic violence, a single mother to three kids. Um, And she took me in, even though she had very meagre resources of her own. I'm forever thankful for that. And I totally credit with her, credit her with getting me to university. But um, what I noticed, and I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, was she was a, a cleaner and I saw her go to work and come home and work so hard every day and didn't make nearly as many dollars as people that I know worked ha- as hard or less hard than her. And I just couldn't understand why how hard she was working was not reflected in how many resources she had for her family. And I thought this this doesn't seem right to me. Um, and, and from there, I guess that's sort of like what, sticks in my mind um, and sort of fuels the fire moving forward. How do you feel that your, you know, you say fuels the fire, how do you feel that like your passions have translated into your work? What are some of the things that have sort of stood out to you? Like you've been working at the AMWU for six years now. What are the things that you've sort of achieved that you're like, hell yeah, that fulfills me? And it sort mm. of helps me, you know, with that pain of seeing somebody that was working really hard and isn't as well resourced. Mm. I think I think the thing that um, the the value that all the sort of thing that I've carried with me is how important it is to uh, be vulnerable when you're doing this work and this organising because it is real people in their lives, and you know uh, you have like a lot of amazing tough women that I respect who say you've got to be tough. Um, you've got to water off a duck's back, but that's just never worked for me. I feel it all really deeply and I think that, um, <coughs> pardon me, I think that um, sort of drives my motivation ongoing, ongoing. And the the thing that really stood out to me, it isn't very sexy, Leash, but um, I think I, I always tell this story when I'm talking to young women about getting involved in the union movement. Um, I... Uh, I think at the start of my organising time, I met uh, a bunch of uh, mostly women, uh, mostly second-generation migrant workers at a McDonald's in uh, Blackdown. Um, and um, they um, they were really scared. They were paid just below or just above, sorry, the minimum wage, really hard to get by doing really hard work. And together over six months or so, we got organised um, we got them a union contract. Um, they got themselves a union contract. They fought and won a union contract. Um, and they won a 9% wage increase over three years. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but for people who are living paycheck to paycheck, it's the difference between being able to send your kids to, you know, sport on Saturdays or pay your bills without going into debt. And really it's their story. So they took all the risk. But 
a lot of a lot of work in organizing and politics isn't very glamorous and it doesn't put us in the limelight but it actually does change people's lives so as much as I'm sorry it's not really fun and um saucy I think that no really no is no I think me. that that is I completely agree with you about vulnerability and I think that you know a lot of our world and how we sort of work together whether that's like corporate or politics or what or family if we acted with more vulnerability I think that we would you know I think things would work more effectively can you tell me about organizing because I feel like you know for someone in the union movement and you know I've been adjacent even I don't probably really understand what organizing means what does organizing mean to you um, I'll talk about it in, in the abstract and then I'll give real examples, right? Yes. So organising is really about working with people to identify what is wrong in their lives and how we can make that change. And that involves uh, always involves power and shifting power, um, but you can't sort of uh, make a buck on that. You, you actually have to do the work and what that looks like in the Australian context is um, spending time in um, different workplaces, talking to workers, understanding what their issues are, and giving them the tools and the confidence to act not alone um, as themselves but as a group and demand change, whatever that is. And, you know, like sometimes it's pay rises, right, but uh, sometimes it's smaller things like being able to wear this kind of uniform or, um, you know, um, it might even be bigger societal change like, um, you know, a development that's happening in your your neighbourhood or, um, you know, marriage equality. That was organised, right? Um, So, so you know, in my experience, you know, a lot of workplace organising, so shifting the power in the workplace um, so that the boss doesn't have as much and workers have a little bit more, but organising happens everywhere. A lot of that would be incumbent on union membership, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this takes me to the fact that, like, it's no secret that in Australia trade union me- membership has declined. From 92 to 2020, the proportion of employees who were trade union members have fallen from 40% to 14%. And that has, like, that's a lot of implications for workers' power and working as a collective to get better outcomes from the bosses (laughs) um (laughs) um, why do you think that is and like why do you think union membership has declined and why do you think unions are still relevant in 2021 yeah that's a really good question babe but I think uh, so so your statistics are right and if you even go back further to sort of the 70s it was well above 50 percent and when unionism was that high we saw gains not just for the workers in unions but for everyone so so not a lot of people know this and fair enough um, but unions were at the forefront of the fight for things that we enjoy and take for granted today so things like superannuation our medicare system better working rights like paid parental leave etc and obviously Um, I I think it comes as no surprise to a lot of us that conservative governments didn't like how effective trade unions were at socialising the wealth of this country, uh, making it fairer, better, et cetera. Um, So conservative governments over a long period of time, over decades, have worked slowly to unpick um, the power of working people and their unions. They've obviously had some hiccups. A lot of us might remember, or some of us might remember as kids, our um, teachers going out on strike um uh, against your rights at work yeah yeah so so 
they made a the conservatives under John Howard made a really big misstep in their project to sort of disempower unions by trying to throw it all out at once and throw out all of the wins at once. So what they learned really quickly was they had to do it bit by bit by bit so that they hopefully nobody notices. Um, and I think you're right, um, you know, it is, it is fair enough for young people to say, well, why? Like why do I have to part with 13 bucks or 8 bucks or whatever it is? Um, but we need to turn it around because really our generation um, and I'm, you know, uh, 28. You're young, we're babe. F- Thank you <laughs> so much. <laughs> yes. Um, but we're going to be the first generation that not only won't be winning new rights, um, but we'll be going backwards in terms of, you know, our parents and our grandparents had more than us. And and that's pretty despicable in my, in my mind. And so, um, you know, unions, a colleague of mine always says that the biggest and most effective social justice movement in the world. Um, and just a quick story um, at the start of the pandemic that sort of, you know, make, sort of makes unions relevant to our daily lives. At the start of the pandemic, we brought all of our workplace leaders together. And we said, we've got to act collectively here because this is a big challenge. We need to stick together, but we need to win for our members. So what we landed on doing is directing all of our energies and all of our efforts for about a month and a half or six weeks into putting pressure on every single boss to provide two weeks paid parental, I'm sorry, paid pandemic leave. Yeah. Um, We won it in 90 workplaces, which is not enough, but something. And And when you say workplaces, like what sort of workplaces are we talking? Is it like Woolies? So, so my union doesn't cover Woolies. Yeah. Um, we cover um, factories, yeah. um, food factories as well, where um, a lot of people might know there is a, a big spread, right, of, of COVID at the moment and it's a big problem. Um, so we won that and um, not only did that take a weight off members' shoulders in terms of they didn't have to choose between paying the rent and um, protecting their community and their family, but it was also a social good for everyone in the community because it meant less circulation of the virus. And so that's just a really recent example of something that we won, but that was because workers decided this is a priority for us, protecting our people and protecting our community. How do you think that we can, how do you think that the union movement can sort of stay relevant in 2021 and attract more members or is it just inevitable that collectivism has sort of waned? I think it has. Like we know that, right? Like there's so many studies that say people aren't coming together in in institutions anymore, right? They're not going to church in the numbers that they were. They're not going into their unions. They're not members of their local footy clubs. Yeah. Um, (coughs) But I I have a little bit of hope because I see particularly like, you know, um, my younger siblings or, you know, the next generation after us who are coming through, you can tell that they're angry at the state of the world. Um, and soon enough, um, they're going to recognize, recognize sounds super patronizing. That's probably not what I mean. But soon enough, all of their work that they are doing, which is super noble, super good, you know, going to a protest, sharing mm. something on social media. Um, the truth is, you need something more sustained yes. and something better resourced. And so I think hopefully, I have hope that um, people will start to see we need to come together in a more meaningful, structured way to continue to fight this in our everyday lives rather than one Saturday I'm going to a protest at, you know, Town Hall or Fed Square or something like that. Because I think that, like, a lot of – do I call us millennials? Yeah, I think think (laughs) we are. I think a lot of us who have sort of come through student activism have been really floored by the incredible power and 
radicalism of these, like, you know, I'm thinking of school strike for climate and I'm like, I was standing, I felt like a boomer literally, like, standing at the back of this <laughs> rally and I'm like, oh, the young kids, they're so good. <laughs> I was yeah. talking to a girlfriend about this the other day, like, literally they put me to shame, like, they, they really do and they are so effective and, uh, you know, in my work I've been working because obviously blue-collar workers, are, you know, going to bear the brunt of um, the, the change that's coming with the climate. I've been working with some of those school strikers and I'm just floored at not only are they um, real advocates for themselves, but they are real advocates for everyone. So, um, you know, their activism doesn't just talk about the future, their future that um, the government is ruining, but also First Nations people's futures, blue collar workers, regional workers. Um, and I just am floored at that level of empathy, really. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, I think it's really amazing. So, Han, the MO of unions is to, as we've said, sort of fight for fairness, stand up for workers. And as we are well aware, this past year has seen a groundswell of conversation and grassroots action. I'm thinking like um, March for Women around the treatment of women in workplaces and wider society. You have previously worked for political parties and in political roles. What are your feelings about this year and this moment in time? Um, I think that I probably share a lot of your feelings. I know we've spoken about it a lot, that it feels like um, a reckoning, like the, the moment's sort of here. Um, I know myself and I know so many others are talking to the women in their networks, whether it's at work whether it's um, their families or their friends, and we know what the solutions are. I think what I'm most worried about in this is not everyone's commitment to it, but it's how we win. So I think we really need to jealously guard the anger and the resolve to do something about this because there are a bunch of people in power who benefit from the system as it exists, hoping that we give up. And so we need to make it um, a movement, not a moment. Um, we can't just go out and protest one day and think that that's going to fix everything. We need to keep the power, um, hold power to account, keep the pedal to the metal, whatever, because I think there are people um, who benefit from the way things are that are just hoping that they wait out our anger and continue on as normal. So, yes, I think there it is a moment in time. It's a reckoning, all of those things, but we need to carefully and thoughtfully make sure that we continue that work so it's actually lasting change. So talking about winning, I feel like when it comes to sort of addressing these issues, it sort of seems like we just have endless reports. So in the like parliamentary context, we've seen the Foster report, we've seen we've got Jenkins being handed down in November, which, you know, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I was a part of the process and I thought it was I thought it had a lot of good to it. Outside of Parliament, we've seen uh, another Kate Jenkins report, Respect at Work, which I imagine in sort of like your union context, you w- there would have been a lot of conversation about. Um, do you think these achieve anything? And like when we get when we talk to winning, um, how how do we win? How do we solve this <laughs> cultural issue? I'm asking you. I've got a bloody unionist on the podcast. I'm like. <laughs> You have to tell me in half an hour how do we solve, how do we, how do we smash the patriarchy? Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, you knew that I wasn't going to come on this episode and um, not find an opportunity to gas you up. So I just want to say thank you so much um, for 
being brave enough to speak um, to the the review. I think that is just so amazing, and I'm really, really just obsessed with you, of course. Obsessed um, with you too. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, your question was around these reports, right? And yeah. how do we win? And I think <clears throat> the beauty of um, progressive movements in this country is that everyone has a role to play. Whatever your skill is, there is something good that you can be doing. And I don't want to, um, uh, I, what I want to say is the reports have been fantastic in highlighting very clearly what the problem is, where power lies and what needs to be changed. And I am really grateful and admire the women who have done that work. But the thing is that change doesn't happen when we ask, just because we ask nicely. So, or it doesn't happen because the Prime Minister commissions a report, right? Mm -hmm. It happens through identifying where the power is and organising hard to fix it. And it happens when we run sustained and really strategic campaigns that make it too risky for, um, you know, in a reputational sense, too risky for the people in power not to act. Um, So really good that these reports are naming the problem, but this is not, this is a means to an end, not an end in itself is how I see it. Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think that you touched on something that I feel very deeply in the sense that I think that every woman has a role to play and has, well, well, and has a different, their activism might look different. Mm. Like someone might go to a rally, someone might be working on academic policy, um, And there are so many angles that we can come to it. So do you think that really the answer is just, as you said, to keep the, keep your pedal on the metal? (laughs) I butchered the phrase. I think I did too. Is it it just about momentum and it's just about keeping having these conversations because, God, man, it's tiring. It's so tiring, right? And it is really hard um, not to let it grind you down. And to be honest, like it does some days, like, I think that the thing that um, potentially a lot of women, um, particularly women in leadership, um, are reluctant to talk about because we're worried it will discourage people is that sometimes it just really grates you and really gets you down. Um, I think it's the pedal to the metal stuff. I think the other thing to remember is sometimes we want to, hmm, how what do I does- say it? No, you, could, you go. No, you go. I was going to say, what does winning look like to you? Well, I think it's there, right, in the report. And we know, you know, I was listening to someone the other day talk about we've, we've had the answers for so long, right? Like a major one um, in terms of uh, men's violence against women is um, social housing. Yes. Um, and just no one has built it, right? And so we know what they are. And I think, I think reports also potentially give a false sense of progress because we, it's the same solutions, right, as 20 years ago. Just no one has had the political will to do anything. So I think winning looks like to me people actually just pulling their finger out and doing it, right? Um, and, you know, we know politicians by their name are political animals and they need to be able to see the electoral risk for them for not acting. And that usually means talking to a bunch of people in the community and making them care about it. But that's just one way, right, to achieve change. There's, there's so many ways. But I think the thing is um, we're just not coming together enough. Like we need to come together and talk and figure it out. Um, you know, you saw the Women's Safety Summit. You know, like things like that shouldn't be an exclusive event, right? Anyone who cares about this stuff and wants to build a better future should be there. I agree. Um, you know, give us a ticket, Scotty. <laughs> 
And I might wrap it up with this one question because I could talk to you all day. Uh, I always end my guests with uh, asking what if they had one piece of advice or wisdom to young women interested in, you know, getting more involved, interested in unionism, what would what would your advice be? I thought a lot about this because um, you know me, I am just the queen of just like turbocharging any young woman with all of the advice and all of my experiences so that they're armed and equipped with it. And really that's just so silly and unrealistic. And so the one that stuck out of the laundry list of things um, about how to sort of survive and make it in, in sort of the political space is find a mentor. And I know that sounds really icky and like school campy. No, vibes. I like it. But, you know, like the thing is if you're feeling it or experiencing it, it is 100% certain that there has been a woman before you who has been through it. And you shouldn't have to sort of weather that alone. You should absolutely um, be able to just get on the phone with someone to say, um, you're totally right, you're on the right track, um, keep going, or here's something you should think about. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it feels uncomfortable, but just ask someone for a cup of coffee and ask them that you'd like to pick their brain, um, you know, in your field. Is what I would say. I think that's very solid advice. Hannah Smith, thank you so much for joining me on In the House and In the Senate. And I can't wait to give you a cuddle in Sydney. (laughs) One (laughs) day. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, babe. In the House and In the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and In the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye to you. <laughs> next question. <laughs> See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.